Welcome to Civilly Speaking with host Sean Harris. Each month, Civilly Speaking brings you interviews on practical and timely legal issues on the local and national level. We hope you enjoy today's show. Hello, I'm your host, Sean Harris, and this is episode 45 of Civilly Speaking, brought to you by the Ohio Association for Justice. Today is March 25th, and I'm here with our very special guest, Justice Melody Stewart. Justice Stewart, thanks very much for joining us here on Civilly Speaking. Thank you for having me. I want to start by congratulating you, obviously, on your election to the Supreme Court, and thank you for taking the time to, to talk with us today. You've kind of always aspired to, to be on the bench, but earlier in life, it was a different bench, a piano bench, <laughs> uh, that caught your attention. Tell us about uh, how you got interested in the piano and, and how that came to be. Well, as I often said to people on the campaign trail, with a name like Melody, what else would I study in, in undergraduate school, right? So I do have a bachelor's degree in music from the College Conservatory of Music at the University of Cincinnati. I will tell you the exact way I came about studying music. When I was in kindergarten, back in the days when public schools still had pianos in the classroom, imagine that, my kindergarten teacher played the piano. We had a piano in our classroom, and she would play, and we'd gather around and sing songs. That was part of the curriculum in the morning when we came in and sometimes during the day. So when it was time for the kids to go out for recess, I would go over to the piano. I just was amazed by this, this thing that played these notes that kept us in beat and kept us in pitch. And, and so I would try to pick out the tunes that she played. And after doing that on several occasions, one day when my mother came to pick me up from school, my kindergarten teacher said to her, you know, I think you ought to take her to the Cleveland Music School settlement and, and start her with music lessons to see if she's interested. I was about five and a half or six. I, my mother did. She took me to the settlement where I studied theory first, because I think you had to study theory before they allowed you to study an instrument. And then I studied piano, classical, classical piano. And then after about seven years, six or seven years, then I took up classical guitar. So through my entire secondary education, I studied music along with algebra and French and trigonometry and, and science. <laughs> And do you have time to play piano these days? I don't have as much time as I'd like. Every now and then I do go by and sit and play to be sure my piano is still tuned. In undergraduate school, I studied theory and composition. And so what I do more so, because it's easier with technology, is if I can think of a, a passage or a tune to compose, I'll sit down with my music software or my keyboard and I'll compose something and the, the, the technology and the software just throws it up right there, as opposed to using a number two pencil and an sure. eraser, like I had to do in undergraduate school. So I don't get to do either as much as I'd like, but hopefully that'll change soon. Now, and speaking of composing, I'm saying that right, I, you have written some music. I have. Nothing that, I, I have to keep my day job, for sure. But most recently, I, I worked on, helped to write some music for a short film called St. Valentine Day Massacre, I think it was called. Um, it was recently up for an award in Los Angeles for a music festival. So I, I started the project before I ran for the court and unfortunately didn't get to stay into it as much and, and took a uh, a, a, a second, a backseat kind of to doing it. 
but still made some contributions there. So I, th- I think it's available online. So that was, that was a, good, a good foray kind of back into it. Sure. Now, I also understand that you uh, earned a PhD in social sciences mm-hmm. from Case Western. Yes. Um, tell us about those doctorate studies. What did you study? I studied, so I got a PhD in social welfare and the policy route. I, again, that was a, it was a program that just kind of fell in my lap, quite frankly. I had been a, out of law school for about 12 or 13 years. And actually, I was going to the Mandel School to meet someone to talk about running for the Court of Appeals and stumbled into the program. And it's a, a story that's too long and too detailed to get into. But ultimately, I did apply and was accepted as a Mandel Leadership Fellow. And it was fascinating. I never thought I would find myself back in school after law school. And I never thought that there were actually subject matters that I knew nothing about. But regression analysis and, and so those sort of things I knew nothing about. So those were make or break me courses, but fortunately I, I did well. And so that program allowed me to write papers that were all law and social science related because you got to choose most of your topics. You just had to do the work and do the research and do the analysis. And that program also, I think, helps me to ask the right questions as an appellate court judge. And so it took me a while to complete it. You know, when you go back to school after being in the workforce, work gets in the way with life, and life gets in the way of work, and work gets in the way of school, and all of that. So I, I completed the dissertation, ironically, while I was on the bench at the Court of Appeals. Fantastic. And somewhere, and forgive me uh, the timing of this, you also managed a healthcare staffing company. Right. That was long before law. That was before right. That, that was between undergraduate school and law school for a year. Very good. What, what drew you to law school in the first place? That Working at that place, the healthcare staffing company, the, first of all, I, sh- I need to say, my older sister is an attorney, or I should say was an attorney, because she hasn't practiced in quite some time. And she went to law school. We actually graduated about 10 years apart. And she was in law school when I was in high school. And she worked full-time, and she studied part-time. And I remember saying to myself, I would never do that, because I thought she should be bonding with me as opposed to studying law. But the uh, vice president of the company I worked for was in law school at the time, part-time. And he would come in and sit his books down, and I would look through them. And they were just interesting. And I'd been at the job for about a year, and I thought, you know, this law school stuff seems interesting. So I applied literally on a whim, didn't know. The process of my application to law school was so unsophisticated, particularly compared to the way students apply now. You didn't go to the website, say, Uh, and plug it in? What was a website? Exactly. Not only did the websites not exist, and let me tell you, I only did my last paper in law school on a computer. All my other papers were done on a typewriter. For those of you who are like under 30 and don't know what typewriters are, please ask someone. <laughs> but at least it was an electric one. Oh, wow. Um, so I didn't, U.S. News and World Report, didn't know about that, law school prep tests, you know, LSAT prep. I got a good night's sleep, took two number two pencils, ate breakfast, went and took the LSAT. And so I found myself in law school, and I guess the rest is kind of history from there. Sure. So we've covered healthcare management company law school administrator and professor, but then in 2006, public service entered your mind and you ran for the Court of Appeals. Was that your first it was. It was not. I ran for the Court of Appeals in 1999-2000 for the 2000 election. I wasn't successful in the primary then, and I also ran for the same 
for the court again in 2002. Got closer, but still not successful. So 2006 I ran. It was going to be my final time. It was, you know, the third time is a charm. I just figured if it, if it didn't happen, then it wasn't meant to happen, and I would stay in law academe where I was perfectly content. And, and I only ran for the appellate court because being in law academe, the Court of Appeals and being a law professor were very similar to me. It was the researching and the writing component. And I had been out of full-time practice for quite some time. So I didn't think the trial, I thought it was better suited for the appellate court as opposed to the trial court. And so in 2006, um, it, it was, it was uh, a successful endeavor. And I have worked in the public sector for a large part of my life. When I practiced law, I was doing assistant civil defense litigation for the cities of Cleveland and East Cleveland for a while. So, you know, public, working in the public sector has just always been there for me. And I've worked both in the public and private sector, and I don't work any different in, in either way. So, but it just so happens that someone suggested that I run, and I took them up on that suggestion. As you think back to your time on the Court of Appeals, are there cases or opinions or decisions that stick out in your mind? Sure, there, there are. And, and ironically, most of them are, are uh, dissenting opinions <laughs> or, or minority opinions. Uh, there are a couple that will always be with me. One and two of the cases dealt with DNA testing of uh, having someone exonerated for crimes they did not commit. And those individuals have since been, you know, as I said, exonerated and have been released. But after spending a considerable amount of time in prison for crimes they did not commit. Those are probably my most important. One was a majority opinion and one was a dissenting opinion that ultimately led to some more litigation down the road that led to the release. So those are the decisions I always say if I never render another decision again in life. I'm happy that I got to participate in those. Fantastic. There was one case out of the 8th District Court of Appeals in which you wrote a dissent that would be of interest to our members, uh, and that is Marusa versus Erie Insurance mm. Company. In that case, the court held that a police officer whose negligent driving caused a crash with Marusa's vehicle was immune mm -hmm. from civil liability. Erie Insurance cited the Political Subdivision Tort Liability Act, in which police drivers are immune from liability even when they're at fault mm -hmm. with an innocent victim. Do you remember that case? I do. Do you remember your dissent and what, what sticks out? I do. And, and that was another case that, that I, I was going to mention just before you, you brought up. Because that case dealing with insured who was severely injured, I believe the, the driver, the insured in that case, and her daughter were severely injured. Police officer responding to an emergency call. There's no question there was immunity there. But the driver has insurance. Full coverage. Uninsured coverage, underinsured coverage, and her company said, well, because our policy says you can only recover from, uh, or you can recover from um, when someone else is, uh, that you're legally obligated or le legally entitled, I'm sorry, to recover from, then, but because you're not legally entitled to recover from the city of Westlake, we don't owe you coverage. That was one of the most absurd propositions I ever read. And so I think I said that in the dissenting opinion. I remember discussing that case with my colleagues and, and not only saying how I think their interpretation of the Supreme Court case they used to, to hold the way they did, I, th I thought they were interpreting the case wrong because it talked about, and I can't remember the exact Supreme Court case, but it talked about 
the ability to contract certain aspects of your, your policy away. And that wasn't what this case was about. But more importantly, I said, do you understand the ramifications that this case could have? That means Ohioans driving around who pay for underinsured and uninsured motorist coverage could be hit by an ambulance, a fire truck, a police car responding to emergency vehicle. The municipality has absolutely no responsibility and no liability to pay. And then the insurance companies turn around and say, we don't either. So what are we paying for? You know, and, and so fortunately, the Supreme Court saw the error of the majority decision and reversed using some of the dissent. <laughs> that's got to feel gratifying. And I know that that's an issue that uh, I talk about with my clients all the time that they say, gosh, I did everything right. I wasn't at fault for the crash. I did the right thing in protecting myself mm -hmm. and my family by buying this coverage. And you're telling me I can't use the coverage I paid for. Absolutely. That's, that's, that's the very thing we had in, in, in our, and that's the very thing I said with the discussion. From the Court of Appeals, obviously you campaigned and were successful for the, the high court. Tell us about the campaign. Took you all over the state, I gather. It did. It did. Where did you go? I went to every corner of the state. Of course, I live in Northeast Ohio, but I went to Northwest Ohio, Southwest, Central, and Southeast. I had a goal of visiting all the other 87 counties, the ones I don't live in, obviously. And I was not successful, unfortunately. I think I got to about 62, but I still went to every corner of the state. And you know, what I found is that we are really more alike than we are unalike. Everybody wants good government. People want their tax dollars to work wisely for them. They want public officials to be good stewards of fiscal resources. And from the justice system standpoint, people want to feel like they're being treated with respect that there is fairness in our system, that people can recover when they need to, that they can get good lawyers and have be fairly represented in, in the court system. And so I've thought, you know, we need to, we can make our justice system better. We can make our judicial system better and our legal system better. There's always ways to improve things. And not that we have a bad one. We don't, but we can improve. And I think it needs to start at the highest level of our judiciary, and that's the Supreme Court. So that's one of the reasons I ran. You've been on the court now for about three months. Yes. Anything surprised you so far? No surprises. I, I, I'll say this, and my former colleagues on the 8th District will probably chuckle. So not only the 8th District appellate court judges, but even some of the judges from the other appellate districts across the state when we would go to conferences, et cetera, we would wonder, you know, we'd say, oh, the Supreme Court, they don't put out very many cases. And then, and, you know, we work so much harder and we have all these cases. And, 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 but at the appellate court level, we sit in panels of three. Everything here is en bas. It's the whole court. All seven of us have to weigh in on everything. And so the amount of work, the work both intellectually on a regular basis and volume-wise, has increased. So it's the quality and it's and it's the quantity of the work. But there this is an amazing staff here at the Supreme Court from, you know, the justices all the way down to the people who take care of the building. And everyone wants to make sure that we put out the best product and we do our best work here. And so as I said, I think in my swearing in ceremony, it's been both overwhelming and rewarding at the same time. Tell us a little bit about the the decision process where from oral argument to voting and Majority, dissenting opinions, those kinds of things. 
cases? So we, as you all know, we hear cases on Tuesdays and Wednesday mornings. They are live broadcasts, so if any of you want to watch them on Ohio Channel. And after we have hearings, we go into conference, and we discuss the cases that we heard that day. We discuss jurisdictional decisions, and, and we do things like this, too, even on days when we're not in hearings, looking at jurisdictionals and, and memoranda and support of jurisdiction to get into the court, ruling on direct appeals, looking at original actions, entertaining motions for delayed appeals, for reconsideration, looking at recommendations for being admitted to the practice of law without examination, looking at disciplinary matters for lawyers and judges across the state. So there are a whole host of things that go. And then we get to the administrative aspect of the job. So we're currently in the process of hiring a new administrative director. We, have, we get reports from various commissions, recommendations on rule changes, personnel decisions. So we have a whole administrative docket that goes along with our, with our judicial, uh, with our case responsibilities. And then we all have to weigh in on everything. Everybody gets a vote? <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> so one of my uh, uh, friend's sons once asked if the chief justice got two votes. Right. And I said, she might want two votes, but I don't think she... No, she gets one like the rest of us. Talk to us about uh, going forward from here. What do you uh, see your role as on the court? Do you have any goals or things you want to accomplish during your time here? I, I do. I am still, probably not to anybody's surprise, getting my legs up under me on the job and still learning a lot while keeping up with my responsibilities on the court. But I hope that I, along with my colleagues, colleagues because I can do nothing by myself, I hope that we look at every aspect of our judicial system, getting input from the other members of the bench, getting input from the people who work in our judicial systems, from the, the attorneys to the court personnel and staff, and input from citizens on things that, that they see across the county and across the state, quite frankly, that would make our judicial system better. People shouldn't lose jobs because they have to continue to come back to court for continuances. Maybe that means we have more evening or weekend hours, so people who have to come to court for things like traffic violations or misdemeanor charges, can get those adjudicated and taken care of and not have to lose their jobs. Bail bond reform, of course. And so there, there are a lot of things where we can have all sides sitting down or giving input and figure out how we can make it better. Everybody might not walk away perfectly happy, but if we can improve at all aspects of the, of the legal system and the judiciary, then it's better for everyone. Well, Justice Stewart, thank you very much for, for being here today. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And thank you to all our listeners out there. If you like our show and want to learn more, check out civillyspeaking.com, or please leave us a review on iTunes, and we'll see you here on the next episode of Civilly Speaking.